Welcome to the Hobcast, a weekly podcast from Hobeck Books, an independent publisher of thrillers, crime, and suspense novels. Each week, we'll take you behind the scenes of what we do, the challenges and the triumphs, the bumps and troughs of building a new creative business in this pandemic world. We'll hear from the people who make all this possible, the authors, cover designers, and editors, and we'll have expert insights from our guest star interviews. Nothing is off the agenda on the Hopcast from Hobeck Books, as we combine trad values and an indie spirit. Hello, Hello. and welcome again to the Hopcast. It's a special edition. It's a midweek edition. We never do this in the middle of the week. No, we We don't. We don't do many things in the middle of the week. But (laughs) it is show number 81, and the reason it's in the middle of the week is that this is a pre-Harrogate special. It is. We have a very special interview. Don't we, we do, we do. We're speaking to Vasim Khan, who is one of the best crime writers in the country, as evidenced by the fact that he is on the shortlist for this year's Theakston's Old Peculiar Crime Novel of the Year Award, which will be awarded the day after this podcast is published. Yeah, tomorrow. And by the time we see him in the flesh, he'll know whether he's won or not. Exactly. Um, so it was great to speak to him. Now, Vasim is also known for his... Uh, Partnership with Abia Mukherjee on their wonderful podcast, The Red Hot Chili Writers. Which I highly recommend because it's very funny. It is really funny. Um, and he's also a, a leading light in the Crime Writers Association. So many things to talk about with Vasim, and he'll be along a little later. In fact, we're going to keep the uh, the top of the programme tight. He keeps telling me this. It never I'll, happens. I'll believe it when I see it. We haven't it, said we should say who oh, we are. Oh, yeah, we'll do all that now. Okay. <laughs> Well, my name is Adrian Hobart. And my name is Rebecca Collins. And together we run Hobeck Books, UK independent publishers of the following four genres. Four genres. Crime. Thrillers. Mystery. And the other one, suspense. (laughs) (laughs) And uh, we, in this podcast, usually reflect on our lives and also, you know, the the facts and figures and the difficulties of running a business in the uh, current climate. And uh, we also have our star interview. So we've already mentioned who we get, got on the programme. Uh, we also deal with some news. We what do. Have you, what have you found? Well, we've only got two days to go on. And actually, there was quite a lot of things in the two days. Um, the first thing um, was uh, a news item about Amazon, who seemed to be managing to escape paying corporation tax. Yes, again. Yes. Again. Yes. So, uh, But their argument is... But look what we've done for the UK economy. We've built so many new buildings for, you know, the business, operating the business farm. We've created jobs and we've generated lots of, you know, spending and income and blah, blah, blah. Well, it is the nature of these global companies is that they can base themselves in a tax regime where they don't have to pay corporation tax um, or or much less. Um, So often they're based, uh, currently Google, I think, and Amazon have their European operations based in Dublin where the tax regime is lower. But basically, yeah, I mean, they generate billions in sales in the UK and don't really, uh, you know, pay much back into the exchequer. Of course, people who are employed by them are paying taxes. That's their argument. They're saying we're paying all above board on the, the you know, national insurance and income tax. Yeah, and- that just doesn't wash. I think there's a big move to, to change all that. Um, but this is what big global companies do. And, um, you know, it's been a fact of life for years now. But all the, the big digital companies uh, exploit this loophole. They do. And- I mean, you can understand it in a way... Who wouldn't want to save money where they can? 
whether you're one person or a massive company. Mm. It's human nature. Well, I mean, it's efficient tax-wise from the point of view of the accountants and the business. I can understand that. But at the same time, morally, is it right? And that's the the real question. So, uh, yeah, um, no surprise there, I'm afraid. That's been the case for years. (laughs) Uh, And our next story is... Um, It's a continuation of what we've been talking about for the last few weeks. Lack of funding having an impact on the creative arts and particularly prizes. Yes. So these so prizes... We've, what... we've lost, we've mentioned so far, the Costa. Yeah. Which used to be known as the Whitbread, so that's gone. The Blue Peter Award for Children's Literature has there's, gone. There's also another one which uh, we must have missed was the Guardian First Book Awards. That's gone as well. Oh, really? I yeah. didn't notice that. Okay. No, so, I didn't notice so that. So that's three. Now, well, what else is on the on the block? So there's there's two more that are in jeopardy. The Sunday Times Short Story Award. I mean, you might say well, it's just Short Story Award, but actually a lot of writers start off their career writing short stories before they embark on a book, a full book. Yes. So it's a very important It's a good award. calling card. Particularly if you've won that thing, you're going to find an agent, probably. So that's in danger of being discontinued. It's you know it still exists, but it, there's, there's mm-hmm. jeopardy. So there's a warning out there. And then the Desmond Elliott Prize, um, which I confess I haven't heard of, um, but they are going to have to pause for a year because they haven't secured the funding yeah. for the prize money. So, you know. Well, that's the nature of a lot of these things. I mean, we were talking about festivals last week as well. And um, when you talk to festival organisers, they always say, yeah, we're intending to run it as long as we can get the funding. And so, you know, it's not possible really to commit to a venue or to uh, signing up a list of people based purely on ticket sales. It does rely on money from the Arts Council um, or other funding bodies. So, um, I mean, you, you could make the argument, and many people do, that the arts needs to stand on its own two feet. And, uh, you know, that's just tough. Um, in this current climate where you can't afford to feed people or heat their homes and all that sort of thing, the uh, the problems with book prizes or book festivals are minor. And um, I know that we would counter that argument, but at the same time, that is the argument that people would make. Is that, okay, by you saying that, that means that the government are paying the money that they have to help people with their heating bills and no they're not so they're, they're not, not doing no well that's the other that's the zero-sum game here isn't it the, the fact is that that uh well to a large extent they're turning their backs on the problems of, of ordinary people but in a climate when people are struggling it's very easy to make the argument in um you know that uh well why should we be worried about british culture being you know eroded and not being funded in those circumstances, even though the people making that argument often won't have any concern for the people who are suffering. So, it, you know, that's it's used. It's an argument leveled at all sorts of organisations that perhaps don't make things in the sense of, you know, widgets, um, organisations that, that add to our cultural good. Uh, it's very hard to put a, a financial, uh, you know, justification on that. OK, my argument is then... If we don't have any culture or creativity, the NHS is going to be more expensive because of mental health. Yes. No, I mean, there are lots of things you could do that would actually, if you uh, committed money to helping mental health, for instance, properly, or indeed physical health properly, you would actually reduce the cost to to a, a significant degree of frontline services in the NHS. But that's not how it works. No, I know that's not how it works. And I know it's never as simple as it sounds when you 
put it out like that. It never is. So no, but... no, exactly. People <laughs> pre- pre- you know would prefer to just you know focus on the frontline stuff. Yeah, um, it's a very is... British thing, actually. Yeah, it is short termism. Well, we're, we're we're a nation of it, and we didn't used to be, but we are nowadays. And um, Margaret Thatcher's fault. Just well, saying. <laughs> <laughs> You know, other other prime ministers are available to blame for all this, um, but this, the, you know, it is a fact that it has has changed. The sort of um, the, that dynamic has changed considerably since World War Two, um, and certainly in the last thirty forty years. So anyway, we, we we've delved into politics there. I don't know how we got there. Uh, I think that you can blame me this time rather yeah. than yourself. I haven't taken it down the rabbit hole, but you know, it is an interesting time um, watching all things politics, and uh, I was watching. Or listening to Prime Minister's questions um, earlier today, which was Boris's last, and um, you know the bluster and the sort of well, look at what we've achieved, and then you you know really doesn't stand up to any scrutiny whatsoever, um, which is what the Labour Party were were doing, basically saying, well, you know, the economy's a wreck. <laughs> you can't say <laughs> anything other. And actually, most of the Tory Party leadership candidates have been saying much the same thing. It is a wreck, even though they've been promising tax cuts with money we don't have. So I have a lighter story mm, to move on. us away from politics. So, okay. um, a lovely man who I met about a year ago, a very tall, lovely man who owns a Hobeck mug, is donating a thousand of his books for free to UK libraries. It's your paramour, Richard Osman. It is. And you're stalking him, basically. <laughs> well, is he not going to? He's not going to be a Harrogate this no, year. No, he's is not. He? No, no, no. No, they haven't invited him this time. Um, so his his book, um, the first one, uh, thingy, what's it? What's it called again? Thursday Murder Club. Thursday Murder Club is the most lended book at the library. Most lent. Uh, most lended, lent, <laughs> most lent book. Yeah. In twenty twenty one, so it's obviously a demand for it for libraries. So he saw this and thought, you know, he should help people read his book, access his book, and he's doing it. So good on him. A thousand copies. Yes. Uh, it's about a grand's worth of books, if you think about it. For someone like, with a big print run like him. Yeah, the hardbacks aren't. Well, oh, I don't hardbacks. know actually. They could well, be, I don't know. I don't if know. They, if they were paper. Okay. Well, Libraries anyway, tend to be hardbacks, few, don't they? It's a few grand at most. Anyway, yeah. well, thank you very much, Richard. I'm sure <laughs> that the, 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 the people will appreciate that. Well, um, what else have we got to say? Well, we're looking forward to Harrogate. We'll talk about that um, after the interview. Um, it's It's a bonkers event, really in many ways, because everywhere you look are some of the greatest writers in in the English language in the world um, who happen to be focused on crime. And there are lots and lots of friends of Hobeck who are going to be there and members of Hobeck and all sorts of things. So it's going to be as... If if the last one was anything to go by, we'll be knackered by 9.30 and we'll be tucked in bed. But we're not doing the panel events this time. We're just going to to mingle and speak to and build contacts and, and do that sort of thing and spread the message. Just be. We're just yeah. going to be. And record podcasts as well and speak to as many great authors as we can manage. So oh, we can... and we're going to ask someone the winning random question from oh, Wendy, yes. Wendy, a lady yes. called Wendy, who's uh, Wendy Collins, she's called, no relation. I don't know any Wendy's in my family. She came up with the most imaginative random question for us to ask at Harrogate. So I will, I don't know who's going to get the question yet, but 
one of our podcasts, they will get Wendy's Val question. Val McDermott is going to get this one. <laughs> we'll see. If that's if I actually pluck up the courage to ask her to, in, to for an interview. We'll see if, if that happens as well. But let's uh, let's get into our, our, our big interview for this edition of the Hobcast, which is, of course, with Vasim Khan. And he has two major crime series out, one set in the current day India, the Baby Ganesh investigation series. And then another series which has done extremely well and is nominated, the first book of which is nominated for this year's Thiexton's Award. And that's set in 1950s India, just after partition and all the other issues that, that spun out of that. So uh, a great historical uh, work. That's the um, Malabar House um, series. So we're looking forward to, uh, to speaking. Well, we spoke about that. We spoke about many, many things. Oh, we did. We, we Lots covered of all things. sorts of topics. It was a lot of fun as well. Um, so let's uh, let's hear from the man himself before I make any more mistakes about what his books are called. <laughs> <laughs> Here is, I think it's Marsabar actually, rather than Malabar. It is Vasim Khan. Well, it's a great honour to have on the Hobcast Book Show, Vasim Khan. Thank you so much for joining us. Well, the honour is all mine, people. And I'm sorry we didn't have a limo to take you to your home. <laughs> From your I, know, I know I did feel a bit let down uh, by the fact that I wasn't picked up. Uh, but then again, if I had been picked up, you might have kidnapped me and held me to ransom and asked my my missus to pay to pay something to get me back. Oh. Uh, but that would have been a non-starter. She'd probably have said, keep me. Well, we might have had a <laughs> crowd. Can you cook, though? Because if you can cook, we'll keep you. <laughs> Do you like <laughs> squishy boiled eggs? Oh, no, that's fine. <laughs> this is sounding suspicious as you like domestic slavery, which has been in the news this week with Mo Farah. But anyway, let's uh, let's move on. Thank you so much for joining us. Now, look, it's 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 amazing to be speaking to you in a, in a week where you know it's getting pretty bonkers for you because uh, a week after we speak to you, you'll be in Harrogate and up for the big one, the Thiexton's Old Peculiar Crime Writing Book of the Year. Um, fantastic. Well, thank you. So, the, so Midnight at Malabar House, which mm. is the first book in my 1950s Bombay-set uh, historical crime series that, uh, as you rightly say, is on the shortlist for Thiexton's Crime Novel of the Year. Uh, how does it feel? It feels great to be in bed and snuggling up to the likes of Mick Heron and Ellie Griffiths <laughs> and all the other wonderful authors who are, who are nominated this year, but also all of those who have been shortlisted in previous years or, or, or won the damn thing. Um, look, I spent what 23 years trying to get published uh, without much luck seven different novels I've been rejected by pretty much every agent in this country at some point uh, but over the last decade since I have been published and writing uh, I've been it's it's come to me a lot later in life which means that I'm quite mellow about these kind of things I've won awards previously uh, Midnight at Malabar House won the CWA historical dagger so I've experienced those highs and now it's just a question of um for me, the reward is being able to write and know that there is at least one person out there reading these things. Well, the, more than that, but yeah, you're right. I mean, it's your, um, we have a connection in the sense that uh, one of our authors is signed to the same agent, you and Thornycroft. Um, and he was also up for a dagger. Uh, sorry, you oh, was? No, no, Mark, no, Mark Whiteman. No, <laughs> so indeed we, we bumped into each other at cwa daggers and of course people listening to the show uh, last week would have uh, or the week before last i should say uh will have heard um you know There's i grabbed a, a few words yeah, yeah a little snippet so this is uh, actually your second appearance on yeah which is amazing um so about <laughs> same should... i'm i'm wearing out my welcome well no i wouldn't say that only but you now share that honor with abir who's been on twice as well so um and and that's another thing we'll talk we'll talk two, about two later. times too many some might say <laughs> 
uh, nonetheless, you, I mentioned when 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 we bumped into each other, um, just how impactful your penultimate blog, I suppose it is, the one where you described that journey and passed on your thoughts on to how to be realistic about being an author trying to get published and you know those sort of uh, pieces of advice about how tough the industry is even though you're you know reaching the the, the you know you're up there at the, towards the top of the UK crime scene it's still a, a sort of um, you know one never feels settled uh, is that fair? That is fair. I mean, it's nice the way you described that being at the at the peak or the top of the, the, the crime scene, but the peak of a mountain is usually where there's no oxygen and you die very quickly. <laughs> um, look, uh, I'm very realistic about things and I try and uh, pass that realism on to, to, to budding authors. Um, we all hear uh, sensational stories about the million dollar advance and the instant success, but the truth is that most people aren't, are, are overnight bestsellers having already uh, got five or seven books in the drawer so it was the same with me I had seven books in the drawer and then I got a contract from my first series the, the baby Ganesh agency series beginning with the unexpected inheritance of Inspector Chopra which was set in modern India uh, and that book became uh, really successful and it gave me the platform to carry on carry on writing uh, but that couldn't have happened without the two decades of disappointment and heartbreak and continually picking myself up off the floor and starting a new book and always holding on to the fact that I'd always wanted to be a writer and never quite giving up, although you do get incredibly down. And that's a fact. Uh, and the, the, the point of that piece, which people can see on my on my website, basiccon.com, mm -hmm. is simply to give other writers who are in that position, in the trenches, the idea that persistence sometimes does pay off sometimes yeah. and that's no, that's I, that's i mean that's i mean there's no question you need that that persistence is, is essential yourself as well i think that's what you're saying isn't it that even when other people are saying that or other people are rejecting you you've got this belief in yourself and you think you know yeah. eventually and, i'm going to do it absolutely and it's got to be married with something else which um and the nicest way i can put it is don't be rubbish uh, the biggest the, the biggest hurdle to most new writers in terms of getting agents and publishers to look at their work is because the quality of writing the quality of prose is not good enough to be in a published novel and when you're younger or when you're new to, to, to the writing game you don't have enough distance from your work to be able to assess that and this happened to me at the age of 17 I was reading Terry Pratchett's wonderful Discworld series mm. I discovered in my local library and I thought, well, this looks bloody easy. I can do this. And so I wrote a novel, a comic uh, sci-fi fantasy, age 17. And I went to my parents and I said, uh, you know what? I'm not going to university. I'm going to be a rich and famous writer. Uh, so you can imagine what Asian parents said, said to that particular assertion. Anyway, uh, I sent it off to a few agents. It was roundly rejected because, of course, it was rubbish. Uh, and... <laughs> You know, you don't realize it. It was heartbreaking to realize uh, to, 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 to come face to face with that uh, at that point of time when you're young. Uh, but it was an important step on the road because I had completed a novel. And they say that starting a novel is the easiest thing in the world. Finishing one is the bloody hardest. That's true. We are both people who have started novels and never finished them. <laughs> Stop. Why do you always, ago? every week, you remind me of this? I know. <laughs> Every week, it's like you know. Oh, actually, to you be fair, him with, you need to remind him with a big stick. 
Well, it's it's kind of a bit like that. But then, you know, if you stick another novel that I've got to proof or, you know, record for audio or any of those other things, well, how am I going to finish my magnum opus? Do you want to eat? <laughs> okay, well, if you, if you, maybe if you withdrew the two things I enjoy in life, which is watching sport and eating food. Um, You'd be very miserable. <laughs> as long as you're not watching politics at the moment, because it's like, a, well, I'd say it's like a tank of piranhas. Uh, but <laughs> it is. It would be an insult to piranhas, so I'm not. I'm not going to say well that. yeah i mean i think i think that if you know if i would love to put uh, a david attenborough voice on proceedings you know <laughs> here the alpha male approaches the alpha female the mordant species is you know <laughs> <laughs> but it's it's um you know it uh it has fascinated me in fact it's been one of the things that's deflected me and it, um uh, just to mention that uh, we've said this a few times on the podcast but for our lucky listeners at some point <laughs> n- early next year you'll be able to read our diary of our entire year running the business but i've uh, there's been a lot of boris entries uh, from me yeah it's quite funny so th- this diary we write an entry every day the view from mars and the view from venus on what it's like running hobeck and his are always about politics <laughs> oh so it's not it's not Adrian Molish, you know, we're not going to get anecdotes. No, he's not measuring anything. He's then. not measuring any <laughs> anatomy. That, that, yeah. Okay, well, th- this is the nature of the podcast. We divert. Am uh, I Pandora Braithwaite then? <laughs> well, I, I did go out with a sort of Pandora figure oh, at one God. stage, honestly. <laughs> Gwen, if you're listening, you're still my Pandora. But I went out with a girl who was a bit like Pandora at the age of 13 and three quarters. And, and the unfortunate thing is that book came out when I was 13 and a quarter. Um, and it has, and certainly for five years, it was a shadow over my teenage years because everyone assumed. Because <laughs> you're called Adrian. Because I was Adrian, and, you know, la la la. You know, it became one of my nicknames. Are you a bit Here geeky? comes Molly, you know, la 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 la. Have you measured your thing? <laughs> oh, God. Oh, God. There was all those sort of factors. And uh, to be fair, yeah, I think I probably oh, did. We're, we're yeah, dredging up. We're dredging up. We're dredging up teenage angst here. Yeah, yeah I, I, there's a lot of that. I'm working through it. Turned um, into fifty-year-old angst, I think. <laughs> <laughs> well, I, 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 that's the thing, though. You never escape the angst, and I think that's one of the things we see in the diary. But the, going back to the politics side of things, um, you can't make it up. I mean, I think it's got to the point now where we're looking at world events and specifically UK Westminster-focused stuff. And honestly, it's just got to the point where if Michael Dobbs had written this in the '80s. It'd have been laughed out of the place. Well, I'm reminded of a famous uh, Bushism. Do you remember George Bush and his uh, ability to stick his foot in? Oh yeah. Um, There was one that he said, which was particularly hilarious, and he it was it was along the lines of, "Our enemies never stop thinking about new ways of harming our country and our people, and neither do we." (laughs) (laughs) Yes, I understand what he meant by I understand what he meant by that, but uh, you know the the way that he phrased it was utterly hilarious. But it it reminds me of what's going on at the moment because the rest of the world is uh, is is I think looking at this and thinking what the hell is going on in Great Britain? Yeah, Yeah, I think I think they are, and and the fact is that we can know. It's interesting because we were discussing this with uh, our author Tony Gartland yesterday, um, who is based in as I was mentioning these books, they're based in Malta. Um, which is in itself a melting pot of uh, warring sort of political factions, old families that have uh, dominated politics there. But they're right in the middle of the Mediterranean, they're 200 miles from Libya, and it's an extraordinary sort of focus for a lot of dodgy money and all sorts of 
you know things being smuggled and it's it's you know and you think to yourself oh well you know that wouldn't happen in britain but actually the fact is we can no longer as a country look down on anybody else no we can't well, political... you say that but i have so my wife's in-laws are from are visiting from india they're visiting yeah. the uk for the first time and i turned the tv on and they saw this political uh show that's going on at the moment and they just shrugged they said yeah that's all that's all in a week's work in, in india um and i've lived there for 10 years sorry so, the, the, so sure. that's why i write books set in in india and i've seen what truly comical farcical uh corrupt and uh otherwise lamentable politics looks like so for me this is not really as as, as low as it can possibly get um, there's a wonderful case of an indian uh chief minister of a state and the state is 200 million people in india so it's, it's three times the size of the uk and he was given a million dollars worth of funding for to feed the cattle because it was a largely farming uh, uh region <laughs> and he stole pretty much all of it and he was never taken to task. And that's the sort of thing that people get away with in India. So I think in those terms, our politicians are are relatively well behaved. Yeah, <laughs> there isn't the uh, financial mendacity to, to that extent in in British system. Not in the brain. Well, I mean, you know, there, there are still <laughs> enough checks and balances to stop that from happening. But um, well, that's the theory anyway. But it's uh, it, but then again, you know, some of them don't need the money, do they? Like Rishi Sunak or uh, Nadim Sahawi. I mean, they're they're all multi, 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 multi millionaires married to billionaire daughters and stuff like that. And it's just extraordinary. So there you go. Anyway, we'll, where's, we'll get my, where's to... my billionaire daughter. Can you? Yeah, well, <laughs> there you go. Yeah. And I had five boys. I don't think any of them are going to be billionaires, but uh, well, we have five boys between us, I should say. Uh, we, we need to get back to that that sort of journey then i mean one of the things that i i when i was researching ahead of this interview was uh something that you you, you recorded on on video about um authenticity as an author and how in a sense you've gone through that journey yourself because obviously uh you have indian heritage but you're born in london so going back to india for those 10 years has allowed you to write authentically about you know your uh, your country you know india um is that is that a fair description yeah, or very much so i mean authenticity as you know is a huge buzzword in the mm. in the publishing arts but the, the creative arts in general at the moment with, mm. with cultural appropriation being a, a big no-no and, and setting off trip wires and people existing in this climate of fear of saying the wrong thing or writing the wrong thing or acting the wrong thing even these days um I tried to write books with mainly white characters because I'd grown up in the UK and I didn't see any books on the shelves that had any Asian characters, frankly mm. speaking. The odd, lit- the, the odd literary tome, but not commercial fiction, genre fiction. And it wasn't until I went to India and I lived there for a decade and I saw this amazing country going through these incredible changes of being a largely pre-industrial economy to the near global superpower that we think of India as, as today with yeah. the shopping malls and the call centers of which we've all been the beneficiaries i'm sure and <laughs> all the rest of it um, but also having these amazing legacy problems is uh, poverty on a scale we can't imagine and caste prejudice and religious intolerance and all the rest of it and i thought you know what i've got to showcase this in a book but i can do it in a way that possibly other authors haven't been able to do it because you've got either indians writing about india and the tendency is to gloss over some of the the darker things 
or you've got Westerners coming in and writing about India, and the tendency is to go the is to is to turn it all into a little bit slumdog millionaire and best exotic marigold hotel where mm. everything's charming and even the the beggars are smiley and happy and win the lottery and live happily ever after. Well, that's not true. If you're a if you live in a slum in India, your life is awful and it is relentlessly awful. Pro, uh, you know, it's lit, uh, probably a bit like being in Boris Johnson's cabinet was. But, <laughs> you are exploited you are ruthlessly um you know the victims of of abuse and, and and the rest of it and it's a hard hard life so for me to try and put all of those that's that's one of my main impetuses for for writing these novels exploring modern india and then going back in time with my second series the malabar house series to look at the roots of this modern india where where did this modern india come from and although india is an incredibly ancient society thousands of years old it's, it's that period just after India became independent, where I personally feel that the, this modern India was established. Mm, absolutely. And, uh, you know, in terms of taking yourself into that period, how difficult was that to, you know, how much research does that take and how much or do you have a time machine? And because I presumably and I, I've heard Adler talk about this, you know, in terms of there's a there's an oral tradition really that you know your parents and your grandparents you know generations will pass on lots of stories of what they experienced during partition um is that is that absolutely. was that the basis baseline for your for your work absolutely so just to set the scene so so midnight at malabar house it opens in in uh, uh, 1950 um and the protagonist persis uh, is has just qualified as india's first female police inspector and nobody knows what to do with her, so they stick her in Bombay's smallest police station, Malabar House, where the uh, the murder of an, a senior English diplomat living in Bombay happens, and it drops into her lap, and then she has to solve. But she's operating in an environment that is incredibly patriarchal, misogynistic. She's the only woman on the police force. Nobody wants to really work with her. Uh, she's paired with an Englishman, Archie Blackfinch, who's an Englishman who's come over from the Met Police uh, to help set up a forensic science lab in Bombay. And what we've got here is two different sensibilities. So I'm sure you've heard of the saying, and some of your listeners, the the sun never sets uh, on the on the, on the on British Empire. Empire. Yeah. Yeah. Well, Gandhi once uh, quipped that the reason for that is because God doesn't trust the British in the dark. <laughs> uh, what he meant by that was that even after the British left in 1947, because they'd been for th- there for 300 years, and because they'd kept Indians out of the senior echelons of uh, echelons of the Indian civil service, which was the instrument of running the country, the massive monolithic bu- bureaucracy, it meant that Indians didn't. It, it took a while for Indians to get the hang of what to do with the world's largest democracy, as India then became. Uh, it was 300 million Indians at the time, and there's one and a half billion now. So you can see how busy they've been over the last 75 uh, <laughs> odd years. Uh, and for me, it was important to, to showcase that environment because it's in it's just a few years after Gandhi's assassination uh, and partition, as you mentioned, when the country was divided up into three and a million Indians died, not at the hands of the British, I should say, although some might say they were each other. Yeah, because they killed each other, Muslims versus Hindus and Sikhs, often people who'd been living in the same village for hundreds of years together as neighbors. But that's what religious the inflammation of religious hatred can can do to communities. It can tear them apart to the point where they will go out with sword and flame, torch villages to the to the ground, and uh, 
cut each other up on trains and, and, and in the streets. And it was an absolute bloodletting, the like of which India had never seen previously. And the, the shadow of which still lies over the country. Yeah, I mean, there is that, you know, those scars don't even scab over sometimes, do they? Because, you know, there are eruptions of of this, some of it politically motivated and driven. Uh, you know, you think of uh, Indira Gandhi and how she treated the, you know, the things in Amritsar or something like that. And indeed, you know, there are still terrible tensions between Pakistan and India, which are on the point of nuclear conflict every sort of five years, it seems. Um, it just goes on, doesn't it? Yeah, except that none of the none of the nuclear weapons in Pakistan work, which doesn't surprise me. <laughs> well, yeah. I mean... Probably press the button and it'll fizzle out and, 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 and plop about five metres. Like sparkler. From... When you have a sparkler, that's, it doesn't yeah. quite light. <laughs> that's slightly reassuring, but <laughs> at the Look, same time, um... I mean, what I hadn't appreciated, actually, I mean, this is something that really struck me as extraordinary, and I can't remember the exact details, but only a few months ago, the Chinese and the Indian army were... We're finding on the border with clubs with nails through them. Oh, yeah. yeah. Um, so, you know, we talk about India and Pakistan being a potential flashpoint, but actually the Chinese and the Indians uh, are actually it's physically very, killing each other. It's a very complicated geopolitical region uh, for many reasons. And, and part of that is to do with the fact that India is now nearly a global superpower. China is a global superpower. And then you've got uh, little old Pakistan on the side there who wants to be, who wants to believe that it's a, a global superpower. Uh, but it isn't quite. And, and, you know, this is bearing in mind that my mum was born in Pakistan and raised there. And I have lots of friends there and I have, uh, you know, the utmost respect for the, for the nation as a whole. It's just that the politics of the country have not lent themselves to creating a, a strong, viable democracy. Uh, former cricketer Imran Khan is now yeah. trying to do that. But then as we've seen, he's just been ousted from power. So it's a real old... It's a real mess. And that's why I say that when I look at British politics, it, you know, it still looks re reasonably sensible in comparison. <laughs> yeah, it's interesting. I mean, I've been watching that, that the, the sort of uh, progress or lack of it for, for Imran Khan, but also the fact that, you know, he has had to switch directions um, in terms of his, the, you know, the basis of his politics so many times to retain power um, and become a sort of almost a fundamentalist is Islamist. Um, at one stage precisely it's, it's a very complicated setup there and, and I, I just don't know what the answer might be but I think for me personally it's um, when I'm writing these books what I'm yeah. really working on is the relationship between the Brits and and people from the subcontinent because as I said 300 years is a long time um, and you know some have described it as a bit of an abusive marriage because <laughs> the Brits did did uh, do many things that were not very uh, not very good in India, um, and some argue that you know they 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 also helped to bring progress to to India in certain ways. I mean, not everybody would agree with that assertion. Uh, people talk about the railways. And yes, the, you know, I was going to say, what have they done for us? Yeah, yeah the, the railways, railways is always a good a winner, isn't it? Yeah. <laughs> yeah, well, you know, you, you you might not get many Indians agreeing that the the rail, railways were built for their benefit, uh, but you know, some people look at them now and say, well, they did help. Uh, push the country forward others talk about the legal system or the educational system a lot of the outsourcing is now based on the fact that English is a, a second language uh, uh, virtually around the entire country and without that you they probably wouldn't have had this outsourcing bonanza so you can argue the toss both both ways but for me it's um, 
you know, you think about, for me, when I write the Malabar House series in particular, yeah, and I do the research, which you asked about earlier, and I come across these amazing nuggets of, of information. And I think, you know what, that's got to go into the book because the backdrop to these books is about telling people what life was like in the Raj for Indians, not just for Brits, but then what was it like afterwards? And so, for instance, uh, one of the things I discovered, which ended up in, in the most recent book, which is uh, The Lost Man of Bombay, and that's coming out in August. So I discovered that Mount Everest, um, the person who it's named after, George Everett, uh, Everest, a Welshman who was in India as a surveyor. Yeah. He'd never been, he'd never been to Everest, never set foot on, on <laughs> nothing to do with even identifying that it was the world's tallest mountain. That was done by an Indian named uh, Sidkar. Uh, no, Sikdar, sorry. Uh, he, he identified, he was a mathematician who used trigonometry or something to, to identify that it was the world's tallest mountain. But the, uh, the, the Royal Geographical Survey decided that, you know, this mountain needed a name, um, forgetting the fact that the Indians had plenty of names for it. And so they said, well, who can we name it after? Well, certainly we're going to name it after an Indian. So they, in the end, they decided to give the honour to, to someone who was very well respected, and that's uh, George Everest. We so. should get it renamed then, shouldn't we? <laughs> yeah, maybe. Well, I'm sure there's a no. campaign. I love the yeah. fact to use trigonometry. But though. having said that, you know, <laughs> Everest is split between, well, I mean, a, you know, a couple of countries can claim yeah, it. Right. So uh, yeah. I think there'd be a massive argument about who yeah, actually gets the benefit. Mount Hobeck. There you go. Yeah, Mount Hobeck. Yeah, I think that's got to be. I got very excited it? yesterday. This is a, a <laughs> diversion in my head, but that's the way my brain works. Uh, when I found out that there's, a, there's a, an Australian Navy ship called the Hobart. Uh, well, Hobarts get everywhere. Well, I appreciate, you know, it's going to be a name after the place. Called the Ho- is it dishwasher? No, well, no, it's a, a kitchen equipment. The biggest <laughs> kitchen equipment supplier in the world is Hobart. Yeah, and they're American. Australian man who... <laughs> yeah, but I just got very excited that there's a, there's a modern... Is there a meaning to Hobart? Because Asian names normally have meanings. Yeah, I don't think so. Hard worker. Um, <laughs> no, hard worker, yeah, right. You know. Yeah. Well, <laughs> you know my name uh, means... Cosmic Prince of the Sun. Oh, I like that. Well, something like that, anyway. Yeah, well, you know. Or maybe I just made that up, but yeah. It's, well, it's... if you translate my name into Japanese, so I lived, I uh, taught English in Japan for two years, and uh, their names tend to um, be, 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 be probably a bit like what you said, that you could translate them into something. My name, if you translate it literally into Japanese, means Big Bell. Oh, well, I mean, I'm not sure how you feel about that, but I think that's quite, that's quite <laughs> cheerful. It's very deep south. Yeah, I mean, that would explain your bubble butt. My no, what? Not, not, dear, oh dear, no. <laughs> no, what I'm joking. I'm joking. bubble butt? Oh, yeah. it's what, it's what, um, how would we describe, who, it's Kim Kardashian's got the, the world's most famous bubble butt, as you know. Um, as in big? Y- yeah, you could pint, rest a pint. Have you seen it? Mine's tiny. I know it is, it is. It's, <laughs> <laughs> I was just joking. It was just throwing in, you know. No, I, of... I, I, I wasn't going there. I was thinking <laughs> of... Uh, one of these wonderful bells who uh yeah are in- southern bell yeah they, they, they're a southern bell that's there you go. <laughs> yeah i know what you mean i know what you mean well um, i think your name is better than mine though I, I, yeah i mean i'm so sorry to to drag it down like that but there we I go think, i think i think we we need to get our feet out of our mouths and uh carry on yeah okay um right <laughs> I'm trying to think of something cogent and intelligent to ask, but the, in terms of your, uh, this is, a, you know, a standard question that you always get in a literary podcast, but this is what people hang on for. So uh, they always want to know what your writing 
regime is um you know what uh, how many words a day do you target or are you a morning many, person you know, all a night that sort person. of stuff Oh, regime! Oh gosh, makes it makes it sound so professional or even fasci- fascistic. <laughs> um, I'm an incredibly organised person, and I have to be because I waste most of my summer playing cricket on the weekends. Uh, so what I do is I tend to plan very rigorously for about four months before I begin a book. Uh, I use a spreadsheet Whoa. to plan out all the various scenes in the book and do all the research and add it in until I've got a really comprehensive long plan. And then I begin writing and I always write in the morning when my brain still works for about two to three hours. I try and get a thousand words a day done. And then the rest of the day, I can swan off and do whatever I like. Cricket. <laughs> Cricket or whatever it happens to be. Well, it's, it's, it's interesting to say that because, I mean, this is one of the great conundrums, isn't it? In the sense that if you've got a passion for cricket or indeed golf or something like that, it takes time. Um, but it, there's an, it's non-negotiable, isn't it? And I mean, you know, if you love playing cricket and I'm, very jealous that you're uh of a similar age to me but i'm a bit older but you're still able to play um well <laughs> the definition of play well uh, you can fit in some whites which i don't think they make any big enough for me but there you go how you just you, possibly you, colin milburn's paint, um cast offs or something I like can that paint you white <laughs> paint you white yes a bit of white face yeah that'll go down really well under the current circumstances yeah thank you yeah that would really work well no, yeah I mean, the, the whites on your clothing oh i see yeah going with body paint um yeah that's gonna look good isn't Can it you imagine you're going out like that and people saying well he, he wasn't white enough so he painted himself white on top i mean that's very politically correct that is yeah yeah, yeah. oh god we've really strayed here haven't we but anyway um no i i i i saw that you play for the author's cricket club um i I'm desperate to join that. I'm not good <laughs> enough to join it, but I'd love to. Uh, you know, if, if ever you need somebody to field at long leg, then uh, then I'm your man. Uh, as long yeah. as someone else can pick up the throw that gets halfway to the wicketkeeper and then, you know, get it to yeah, the stump. Just described half the team. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'm going to put myself forward at some point. But um, uh, your passion for cricket, uh, I mean, that that presumably is well, it always is with people. I mean, lifelong, or did you come to it late? No, no, no. It's, it's, it's like anything else in life that you fall in love with as a child um, and then you turn out not to be very good at it or at least not good enough to make a living at it. Uh, you, you keep it up as a hobby. And that's what it's always been for me, a hobby, an enjoyable way to spend time with friends and, 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 uh, and to try and get out into the sun uh, and the lovely grassy field. Uh, for me, I think passion is the key word here, right? Because we write, we read because we're passionate about books, we're passionate about literature, and with anything else that we're passionate about, we do it regardless of the reward. So, you know, you talk about the the, the fact that uh, Midnight in Malabar House is up for an award next week. If I don't win, it's not a big deal. I'm going to shrug my shoulders and it's not going to impact in the way that I feel about writing. And the same would happen if my books weren't selling uh i would still carry on writing and i think that's the only attitude you can have to things that you're passionate about yeah absolutely uh going back to the cricket for a moment (laughs) (laughs) do you watch test matches like he does that go on for hours absolutely there is no other form of cricket as far as i'm concerned yeah me too my my brother's also a big cricket fan and uh so i've just been on holiday for a week with my mum my sister my brother we had cricket on all day good people (laughs) Yeah, it's the only way. It's the only way. I mean, you know, I, it br- it brought me up in the eighties. Uh, you know, my summers were pep. You know, I had nothing else to do. I had to watch the cricket, and then 
God forbid in those days where, you know, there'd be a rain delay and they just put the test card back on. Oh, I see. Uh, me know. and my sister would go, yay, no more crickets. <laughs> <laughs> well, I was, I was lucky enough to be uh, at Edgbaston last week watching the India um, final test. Oh, yeah. And it was just brilliant. Um, and Headingly prior to that. And uh, I'm going to Old Trafford for, for a day. But I just, I, yeah, I'm with you. It's just the best. You know, test cricket for it, it, it's like uh, it's like a novel. You've got time mm. for things to happen and develop and percolate and 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 changes and twists and turns to happen. Whereas you know this new short form of the game, it's you know it's fine for what it is, but it's a quick gulp. It's a short story. It's, it's a, a comic. It's an espresso. Another good one. An espresso one. Well, <laughs> I was going to be a bit more charitable, but yeah, we know we we we're we're both on the same page. That's a nice put it like that though it's made me think i think you'd love it i've got you into darts right and now you see that for me is the winter the form. thing about test cricket is this you take your laptop you take a book you take a picnic lunch and you basically don't have to watch a singer delivery if you don't want to it's yeah. just there in the background it's just the epitome of englishness it is it is oh, well, maybe you could take me next time then well, well, we'll 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 work on this, but uh, no, no, no. It's 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 a great thing. Um, we must be approaching oh, ran- Rebecca's time. random question time. <laughs> should we should we give it the build up? You, yeah, you. But first, build-up. actually, before we do, before we do, we, I mean, we ought to we ought to mention, and we dropped his name in a couple of times. So you do a, a wonderful podcast, the Red Hot Chili Writers. I, yeah, I keep saying peppers. I don't know why where that came from. Well, I mean, the, I think the peppers came after the the writers. So I mean, that's. <laughs> Uh, with Abir Mukherjee, um, how would you describe that relationship? Because I mean, it's, it comes over so well on the on the. You on, are very on, funny on the, your podcast. Yeah, the pair of you are brilliant, say. but you know, there's 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 obviously a great relationship between the two of you. Well, that's Even very you. nice of you to say. Um, I guess the relationship that we have. Yeah. Well, <laughs> yeah, we are only married. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Look, um, look, we're great friends. We we were published. Uh, I think Abir was published just a year after I was. Uh, and uh, I went to see him when he was uh, on the New Blood panel uh, launch uh, in London, where he completely ignored me, although he will deny it and pretends that I ignored him. Anyway, I I put out the olive branch and I invited him for a drink afterwards. This must have been eight years ago or so. And, uh, you know, there's a great picture of us having that drink somewhere in a pub in London. And after that, we've just been the best of friends and uh, we've done so many events together. And because we write... Uh, in, in, in similar kind of books in mm, the sense that mm-hmm. we're both writing about India we're both writing about subjects that are uh, true to our heart uh, about India the Raj and the era after the Raj uh, and because we're both very laid-back individuals and have a sense of humor and don't take ourselves too seriously in the end we thought it would be a good idea to have a podcast and it seems to have you know it's kind of you to say but it does seem to have uh, have worked out really well we met we get the great delight of it is that we get to interview um, some of the, the world's most famous crime writers and and writers of other other feathers when we when we take when we get the urge to talk about something other than crime novels. Uh, and I'm sure you guys do the same because yeah. you have a great, great dynamic uh, uh, as well. And you know that the payoff really isn't isn't about listeners and, and the rest of it. A, part, a lot of it is just the sheer fun of doing these things. It's so much fun. It's a highlight of my week, honestly. We've done two interviews this week and it's like Christmas. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but this was the better one. 
<laughs> oh well, yeah, absolutely. Of course, yeah. This is you know. Sorry, <laughs> They're Tony, all but... the better ones. Yeah, no, you're yeah. absolutely right. You're absolutely right. <laughs> okay, Vasim, uh, we need to we need to put you through this the ringer here. I don't even know what's coming, um, but uh, here is Rebecca's random question. Well, before I ask the question, we asked uh, the dinner table last night what we should ask you. And my youngest son, who's 12, came up with a quite an intellectual, deep question, didn't he? He did, yeah. But then I thought of something completely ephemeral. Shallow. <laughs> <laughs> so I'm going to ask my question instead of his question. My question is, what is your favourite purple food and why? <laughs> what? <laughs> purple potatoes. Yeah. Yeah, because I saw them on a on MasterChef once, and I'm addicted to MasterChef. Um, Me too. I, I do love a good tatty. So, uh, you know what? Potatoes are the staple of the diet of the poor. <laughs> but what would you do with that? <laughs> I grew up, potato I grew up to make it, you know, a cordon bleu thing. <laughs> oh gosh, I'd have to turn it into one of those. Have you ever seen uh, chefs turn them into those flowers? Oh, yeah. Yeah. And you the knife it. skills coming That's out. Really yeah. fancy, the knife fancy. skills. I mean, I have no knife skills other than chopping off my own fingers whenever I try and cut something. But uh, yes, if I had the knife skills, yes, that's what it would be. It would be a wonderful, wonderful flower potato made of a purple potato. Oh, I love that. So it would look like a purple flower, wouldn't it? Well, yeah. I mean, the presentation. I mean... See, my, mine is red cabbage. I love red cabbage. You do. You're obsessed well, red with is not, red. Red is not purple. I'm sorry. Red is well, not. Well, no, purple. You know, it is purple, though, isn't it? No, it is purple, but it's called red cabbage, so I'm not letting you have that. <gasps> I, love, I love that. I love, okay, I love that we've had a challenge have here. Plums? Stewed plums. <laughs> mm, stewed plums. I'm not a big. I'm not big on boiled fruit. Oh, interesting. What's your this favorite is really, purple food? Then? Uh, purple sprouting bro- broccoli. Oh, I hate broccoli. Oof. Yeah. Um, yeah, I think, you know, if you're trying to do the rainbow on a plate, it, it kind of helps. Um, actually, artichokes. Uh, you know, purple. No, but the, if you look at the leaves, there's a lot of purple in those. Beetroot. Uh, but it's funny, but my, my dad used to, I mean, we used to have a fabulous garden in Cambridge. It was, it was a third of an acre. And my dad would cultivate most of it. And um, he used to grow artichokes, which I, I didn't realise at the time just how posh that was. But we missed, we ate them in completely the wrong way. He used to cook them whole, and then he used to get the petals off and try and eat some of them. It was so bitter. Um, it was bizarre. But anyway, um, we also eat asparagus is another one where it's mostly green, but you've got a lot of purple involved. I think that is stretching there. We had, well, <laughs> believe it or not, we had an asparagus patch. We were so posh. Oh, you are? Well, no, we inherited it. I mean, we bought this house and it came with an asparagus patch. It was amazing. We were eating um, Pinder's crispy pancakes. I know, I know, I know. (laughs) My house. The funny thing is, you've kept your figure and I just ballooned and I've I've eaten deep fried everything for the rest of my life. So there you go. I mean, I had a really good start in life and then just went. um, Purple Mars bars. Yeah, yeah. Oh, that's an idea. Well, I'm up in Glasgow tomorrow. I'm looking forward to having. I'm going to have a deep fried Mars bar tomorrow. Oh, you can get you worse. can get them from next to the Glasgow Central oh, Station. Worse. <laughs> I, I probably should mention my publisher wouldn't forget forgive me if I didn't uh, mention that uh, my next book is coming out soon, which is The Lost Man of Bombay, uh, and it's coming out in August. Uh, it's the third in the Malabar House series, uh, available for pre-order. People, if you'd like to get your hands on it, and it's got the most fabulous cover of any of my books and one of the best covers of the year and it's not me saying saying that it's it's just a lot of people saying that it's got this amazing cobra on the cover oh uh, yes there's a yeah i've seen it yeah it's wonderful yeah 
Well, I mean, you're quite right. And where else can people find you? Apart from the Red Hot Chili Writers, uh, which you can get all good podcast platforms, uh, where else can they find you online? Well, it's, it's, well my website, basimkhan.com. Um, in terms of where I physically am this year, it's easier to say where I'm not. I'm at most of the big uh, festivals. I'm doing a lot of other events as, uh, as well it's uh, it's one of those things where pandemic has kept us indoors and now pandemic is over it's um it seems to be a summer of of events and and more power to all of the events organizers and if you don't see you at the zim at, uh, at a festival you'll see him in the middle uh no doubt knocking out a century for <laughs> 11 or indeed taking the gloves as you did quite recently as a wiki keeper how was that i've got yeah. to ask you well yes i was asked uh, which is the nicest way of phrasing it to 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 act as the wicket keeper which uh and i have to say i haven't done it for 15 years so my knees had quite a bit to say about it oh the my next god time. yeah why what do you have to do with your knees well you you basically a wicket keeper is basically in the crouch for 90 uh, yeah, percent yeah. of, the, of the day yeah, um and having to fling yourself around uh you know trying to yeah it's i mean it's just <coughs> i have massive respect for anyone who, who keeps wicket Hard bloody work in 30 degrees heat, I have to say. Oh, yeah. yeah. Absolutely bad. Yeah. No worries. You wouldn't be wearing a Doctor Who scarf then. Well, yeah, true enough. Um, listen, <laughs> it's been an absolute pleasure to see. Uh, good luck with the next book. Good luck with the one that is, uh, you know, the, uh, um, up, for the award. up for the award. And we hope that next time we see you, you'll be clutching that beer well, barrel. And we'll give you a hope at mug when we see you. Yeah. Week. So you get the, <laughs> so two enthusiastic people run up to you with a mug. And that's us. I will never drink out of anything else again. He said it. It's recorded. Richard Osman said the same thing. And uh, I believe... Yeah, but everyone knows he's a big liar. <laughs> You're a man of integrity. We know that. But it's been an absolute pleasure. And thank you so much for joining us on the podcast. Thank you, guys. Thank you so much. Well, I, I knew I'd made a mistake. And there is a reason for this, because we released this week a book by Tony Gartland, writing it's AJ Aberford, in which Marsabar plays mm-hmm. a big part, which is in Libya. But this is Midnight at Malabar House by ah. Basim Khan, which is up for the award. I think you can be forgiven for that. Yeah, I keep getting that thing wrong. So, um, you know, it's uh, it was a great interview. Thank you so much, Basim, for joining us. And we look forward to seeing you in... Um... We promised him a mug, I think, didn't we? We did. We're going to be taking a few. We've got a few left. Um, we've, we've had them about, well, 18 months now, I suppose. They're very popular. Yeah, I love our mugs. Yeah, we, we, you know, they are our calling card. And if failing that, we've got the badges. <laughs> failing that, we've just got our happy smiles. We have. And I, I have a little um, extra thing that I am taking to Harrogate. And what's that? I have a bottle of Edredor uh, whiskey, which is a sherry cask whiskey made in Pit Lockery. And that's exactly where I was earlier this week. And I went, I went to the local whiskey shop, which was very fine. And I said, look, I want a sherry cask whiskey because I know that Miss Abby Mukherjee likes a sherry cask whiskey. Should I take up my orange-flavoured whiskey? Would that go down well? It's a really... No. <laughs> no. These are connoisseurs. So I should be taking that and trying to smuggle it into the, into the grounds of the Old Swan Hotel and see if I can entice authors to have a wee dram with us. And I think that the, the effects could be wonderful on, on, on radio, on the podcast. <laughs> so um, that's what I'm taking up. Um, and uh, I, I've ordered, and they should be arriving today, something called Whiskey Stones. And these are pieces... Oh, I gave my dad some of them for yeah. Christmas once. Well, they're brilliant. So you freeze them. Yeah. And they, rather than you know putting ice in your drink, because I do like the, my whiskey with a little coldness to it, but the thing is the, the, the ice will melt and ruin the whiskey. 
But with whiskey stones, you can chill them mm. without the thing melting. No, they're so, very good. I knew about them. Yeah, so they're arriving today. And so I'm, I'm thinking of everything well, to I, make, this, make this work. I, I'm actually know? thinking of a little surprise, but I just need to... There's a couple of things I need to do first. So all I'm going to say is there may be a visual surprise at Harrogate. Oh, my God. You're going to strip naked or something? <laughs> no, you're going to strip naked. I probably will after a few whiskeys. So that's for sure. That's all I'm saying. It might not happen. I uh, Just a couple of things I need to check before I can make it happen. But there may be a visual surprise. Oh, wow. You don't know anything about it, do you? No, I don't. It's as random as one of your <laughs> questions, no doubt. Um no, looking forward to that. Well, listen, I mean, we're going to be speaking to, hopefully we'll grab some of the great names that are going to be there. But it, it is a wonderful collection of the great and good in, in writing terms, in publishing terms. In, the good, well, the bad, the ugly. Yeah, we're providing the ugly and uh, um, <clears throat> some of our authors are providing the good. We are providing the ugly. I'm providing the bad um, and the ugly. No. Um You'll notice I shaved today just to make sure. Oh, I can I just have a feel? Yeah, go on. Oh, he has. He's shaved. He's all smooth uh, like a Gillette advert. I looked really rough after Scotland. I didn't. I've had a week's growth and it looked uh, it looked awful. So it's come off. And Should it's, we call it rugged rather than awful? No, dreadful. And I looked ugly. Um, so enough of that. But anyway, uh, we don't know who we're going to be speaking to. We don't know quite when the episodes will appear from Harrogate, but uh, we will probably have a couple of episodes based from Harrogate, uh, make the most of our time at the festival. Better get lots of batteries, wouldn't we? Oh, yeah. I'm taking about 100 batteries <laughs> because the recorder eats them like nobody's business. Uh, but nonetheless, we shall have a great time, we hope. And we hope you do too as we uh, bring you some of the sights and sounds and the uh, no, not the smells of Harrogate, which is basically... What does Harrogate smell like? Well, it smells like four in the morning. It smells of people puking up after oh, drinking no, no, too no, much. Oh, no, 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 no. We're not doing any of that. No, it's, a, pe- it's a lovely, lovely event under a big, big marquee um, outside the hotel. And, uh, you know, if you can get a... It's a, it's a premium on winning a seat and holding it for the rest of the time. So, um, And there'll also be this thing where the, the authors gather together in a huge circle, which gradually grows during the day, doesn't it? <laughs> and um, it becomes difficult to break into it. But I think this year, because we know, a, you know a considerable number of those authors now are aware of us, that should be easier, or at least we should have more confidence. Well, I don't know. Uh, it might mean they might hide from us. They think, oh, oh there's those two coming with their microphones. Com- here comes the random question. Well, we'll <laughs> see. We'll see. We hope not. We think we're uh, we're well established now in the community. So let's uh, let's see how that works out. Well, thank you so much for joining us for this bonus episode, episode 81 of the Hobcast Book Show. Don't forget to go to our website, www.hobeck.net to find out more about our authors, our books, our recent releases, our audio plans, all sorts of things going on. And, of course, we will be uh, bringing you the next podcast very, very soon. But uh, from myself, Adrian Hobart. And myself, Rebecca Collins. Thank you so much for joining us. Have a wonderful and creative, well, frankly... Two days. Two or three days, (laughs) yeah, absolutely. Thanks for joining us. You've been listening to the Hobcast from Hobeck Books with Adrian Hobart and Rebecca Collins. You can find the show notes at our website, www.hobeck.net. You can also use the exclusive Hobcast discount code for any of the products at our Hobeck online store. Just enter the code HOBCAST20 for a 20% discount. Don't forget to subscribe to the Hobcast and feel free to contact us with any feedback. 
Until next time, remember our motto, Trad Values, Indie Spirit. Indie Spirit.